Hi, my name is Katie Prudick. I'm an assistant professor in citizen and data science in the School of Natural Resources. And this is Behind the Beaker. Hello and welcome science listeners. I'm Jillian Barch, your host and science reporter for The Daily Wildcat. And you are listening to Behind the Beaker, a Daily Wildcat science podcast. Today we talk with Katie Prudick about her research on the decline of Western butterfly populations. So to start off, could you explain what your research is? My research program is looking at um, how climate change and uh, land use change are affecting the way butterflies and other pollinators make a living and what sort of strategies and, and management policy we can implement to improve their lives. What led to you wanting to go into the field? So uh, just uh, great mentors, I think, is part of it. Uh, I always really loved organismal biology, which is what I do now, um, and ecology. Uh, But just meeting people that I felt like uh, um, reflected my inner identity a little bit along the way, um, and just spending time with the butterflies. I mean, to get paid to run around and chase butterflies is pretty amazing. (laughs) There's other stuff too that I do that's not that as much fun, but. (laughs) Could you explain to us how your research works and what the next step is with your current research? So this paper that we're talking about was published in the um, scientific journal Science, which is a a big one. Um, And it leveraged uh, about 45 years of data from a couple citizen science programs all over the Western US. Um, And what it was looking for is the effects of um, climate change, pesticide use, land use change, a whole different factors on uh, butterfly populations. And we kind of had two findings. One is that butterfly populations on average are declining across the West at almost 2% a year. And two, that decline is mostly correlated with fall warming temperatures. So as falls are getting warmer, we're seeing more of a decline in butterfly abundance across species. Um, How do you collect kind of that data? Well, so I didn't collect it. The scale of what we worked at was too much for one person or even 10 people. We needed hundreds, if not thousands of people to be engaged. And so we used um, community scientists. So so some of them, there were two different data sets. There was one from um, the 4th of July butterfly count, which is taken over a two year, two week period every year near the 4th of July. Um, and that's run through the um, North American Butterfly Association and Xerxes Society as well. And then the other data set was through uh, iNaturalist, which is a web platform where folks who are interested in the natural world can take photographs and report what they see and then either identify and get help identifying plants and critters. Um, and so those were the two data sets we used. And there were oodles of data. How do all three aspects of your research, which are precision conservation, human computer networks, and data how do they kind of all intertwine with one another? Yeah, I think, you know, what's really exciting right now is that, um, you know, these human machine interactions, and, you, you know, you're going to deal with this too over the course of your career, if you're not already, is like machines make us better or they can. And so we can start to leverage or give machines tasks that um, are repetitive and consistent. And then we can spend our time doing things that are more complicated and um, more uncertain. Um, so, so in terms of butterfly watching, you know, the human component is the people going out and observing butterflies um, in the field, catching them, oftentimes taking a photograph of them. Um, 
we're not at a point where sensors can do that well because butterflies are sporadic and, and not very cooperative. If you've ever chased a butterfly in the field, you know what I, it's like a tennis ball that yeah. has its own little mind, right? But once you get those photos, you can have um, machines, in this case, or computers, uh, help you identify and sort um, the images into the right bins. Um, and that takes a lot of time for a person, but once the um, artificial intelligence algorithm has been developed correctly, then it doesn't take the machine very long to do. Um, also, like um, compute resources are really great for analyzing large amounts of data. Like I talked about having oodles of data. Um, if I had to uh, compute all the calculations by hand, uh, with the time series and the, the number of sites, it's just too much. Like I couldn't do it, uh, or it would need you need a small army of me to do it. Um, but you know the computer can do it pretty quickly. So so those are kind of the intersections. Um, you know I think moving forward for any undergraduate at the University of Arizona, regardless of what major you're in, is understanding how computers and sort of the functions they do uh, give you space for doing some of the more complicated fun tasks that they can't do. What have been some challenges you have faced within your research? <laughs> I'm sure there's like, always a lot. <laughs> we were just talking about this on Twitter um, about, you know, different fire, you know, things that setting on fire or like a friend of mine rubbed a poisonous plant all over him and got a, a, a allergic reaction. <laughs> You know, I think that during my PhD dissertation, my um, field sites were in Florida and one summer, like 80% of them are hit with one hurricane or another. It caused panic for me, but it turned out everybody else was fine, including the butterflies and the plants. So um, they were used to it, but uh, I was scared that everything had been wiped out, but that's not what happened. Um, you know, you've been chased down by various animals. I was once chased on top of a car by a a herd of feral pigs so that was fun yeah, sounds like it <laughs> um you know there's challenges always you, you you sort of think about like can i do this project do i have you know am i good enough to do it um am i doing the analysis right like but like at those points you just sort of reach out and talk with people and and you know get advice and and um you know, uh, just uh, encouragement sometimes just from your colleagues uh, and those colleagues can sometimes be undergraduate students even um, in those moments. So, you know, it's, there's a community around being a scientist and it's important not to forget that, that you aren't, it, this uh, myth of like the scientists being out there all by themselves is totally untrue. The, the most successful ones have actually an incredible network of, of inspiration and support. What has been the most surprising thing you have found from this research or doing this research? You know, for me, it was um, the importance of fall phenology. So when we think about um, phenological impact, we're always thinking about spring just because we're, I think, excited for spring, honestly. Mm -hmm. But um, <laughs> no, spring is very important. It's when, you know, things reemerge from, uh, you know, that winter hibernation, whether you're a butterfly or a bear or a poppy, um, you know, it's, it's, that regrowth and regeneration for the next year. Um, but I, it was just, yeah, it was that fall, that fall warming was so important to butterfly survivorship. And, you know, if you reflect on it, as we did in the paper, it was like, oh, well, that kind of makes sense because it is an important time for them to get the right nutrients they need to make it through winter, to make sure that they're aligned correctly with 
um, their hibernation schedule, those sorts of things. So I read that you're a part of eButterfly. Could you explain what that is and how you became a co-director of it? Yeah, so eButterfly is a, is a web platform, so it's available on the internet, and it is a uh, community or citizen science program um, dedicated to improving, providing data to improve butterfly conservation. And what it is, is it's a, a place for enthusiasts uh, to report what they've seen when they've seen it and with whom they've seen it. And then we can take that data um, and we can ask um, interesting ecological questions for it. So again, it's sort of democratizing data collection, in this case, uh, butterfly observations and checklists, which is the not just um, a single species, but multiple species that you see in one place. Uh, and then we can start thinking about and understanding better um, what the needs of butterflies are and how we can sort of uh, forecast what they might be in the future. Have you found anything so far about like the needs or is it still like a work in progress? Oh my goodness, it's, it's, it, there's all sorts of fun things going on. It depends is the short answer. A lot of, there's a lot of species. So in the paper we were talking about earlier, there was like almost 500 species we looked at. So, um, you know, you can take the average, but there's still a lot of variation on that average. So, so being precise with the species is important. Um, uh, there was a, there's a species out East called the Eastern um, giant swallowtail, which sounds very exotic. Um, we actually get a relative, the Western giant swallowtail here on campus. It feeds on citrus and it looks like bird poop. So if you're ever like walking around looking at citrus and you think you see moving bird poop, it's probably that caterpillar. Oh, it's really fun when you poke it. It really even smells like bird poop. It's, it's a good one. But um, anyways, in the East, it's expanding into a new area. Um, it's been moving North at a pretty good clip. And so we were trying to figure out, you know, is that really true? Like everybody thinks it's moving north, but you know, when we actually do some comparisons between, um, you know, 1980 to 2000 and then 2000 to 2020, like it hasn't moved really. Um, how fast is it moving if it's moving? And where do we think it'll stop? Um, and so we looked at using eButterfly data that, that for that species in particular, it is moving north. It's moving north 28 times faster than any other, than your average animal that's been recorded moving north, um, sort of its range. Uh, and the reason it was able to do this so quickly is because its host plant, so the thing that it feeds on as a caterpillar, was already up there north. It, it just, there was some other thing was keeping it back, in this case, uh, February minimum temperatures. So once those got warm enough, then the bug was like, moving, going to Canada. And it did. Um, but it looks like moving forward, it'll sort of really slow down that northern expansion because its host plant um, now has to move north. So, and its host plant has been very, very slowly moving north. And that's because it's a big tree. So it's going to, yeah, it's had a quick jump, but I don't think in the future it will, will move that fast north again. Um, I read about how the global change and climate and land use change happen simultaneously. Could you elaborate more on what that means and how it affects how people view global change? Yeah, so I think some, many folks, and this includes scientists, sometimes conflate global change with climate change, when in fact global change is, is both climate change, so the effect of um, <laughs> more energy in the atmosphere, ultimately that's what we're talking about, is um, dumped a bunch of carbon in the atmosphere, a bunch of pollution. And what's happened is it's warming or adding more energy to the atmosphere, which is gonna 
change a bunch of um, weather in the short term and climate in the long term. Um, land use change is a little different. It's how especially humans sort of engage or use the land. So uh, building a Home Depot is from a, a vacant field is, is land use change. Um, and so you might see butterfly declines associated with um, in Tucson over the past 50 years, but uh, that could be attributed to changes in the built environment uh, or land use change. So we've gone from a lot of desert to a lot more pavement and houses. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that's always important to try to tease out. We tried to, we did tease that out a little bit, uh, pretty substantially actually in our paper. Um, and again, we, we showed that declines are happening in both urban and wild areas. So that seems to indicate that land use change, as I just described it, which is how um, humans really alter the landscape to, to their own purposes is um, not as big of a driver as say climate change. And then you already mentioned about like the warming temperatures and how that's a factor in Western butterfly populations. Um, what are some other factors and what can be done to prevent it? You know, it's funny, I, I teach R&R &R 150, which is online, which is called Sustainable Earth. And we, we spend a whole module talking about different sort of sustainability mitigations and mediations um, to build resilience and resistance to, to human societies. Uh, and so you've got a lot of options. Uh, my philosophy is always like uh, start doing something and then find find something that speaks to you and then you know go from there. Um, so so things that are impacting butterflies are you know heat um, or um, warming, uh, but also is sort of um, land use. So host availability. So certainly you know plant it pollinator garden in your um, backyard if you or encourage one in your park instead of just a large green space, um, making uh, that park useful for other things beyond um, soccer or baseball. And you might see some bunnies and some birds and some butterflies and all sorts of mantis or some fun things there. So so again, sharing that space with our tiny neighbors is, is important. Um, other options include, you know, thinking about ways to reduce your carbon footprint. There's lots of different ways you can engage with that. Um, you can choose food, transit, um, energy use, uh, you know, all sorts of good things, uh, you know, moving forward. I know it's hard as an undergrad. You're like, oh, my goodness, like, what do I choose? And so, you know, I always recommend for my undergrads to say, oh, you know, you don't have to become vegetarian or vegan, but maybe cut out wheat meat once a week. Just see how that goes. Uh, that'll help. Um, if you, you know, want to reduce your plastic, uh, there's lots of cool craft projects you could take, like making waxed cotton or something like that to wrap your sandwiches in or, or those sorts of things. Um, you know, uh, making meals at home and bringing them to school instead of buying stuff and plastic on campus, those sorts of things. Um, and then, you know, save up for an electric car or ride your bike or, you know, think about LED lights and all those things sort of, you know, just start making little changes and those will sort of help you start to think about making bigger changes. To those ends though, I mean, it's also really important to vote and especially voting for candidates who value um, conservation, um, natural resource management and uh, climate change. So I read that your discoveries have been published by multiple platforms and new organizations. Can you tell us more about what that experience was like and how it felt? No, it's it's always fun to 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 um, 
be involved in something that, that other people find interesting beyond just my mom. Um, <laughs> I mean, she thinks what I do is fabulous and she's right, but um, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's nice to have that sort of connection too. Also, like, I feel like, especially now the world is pretty polarized and siloed and things like that. And so being able to connect through journalism with a wider audience has been really fun and sort of, I also love journalists. They just, they think in fun ways and they, they can translate complex um, topics into a, uh, to a specific audience to create a need to know. And that's a really amazing skill and it's fun to watch. Uh, it definitely improves my teaching for sure. They're just those conversations with journalists. I loved reading about your work and I just thought it was cool that it looked like it was on so many different platforms. It was amazing. Um, what is your favorite memory from working on this research? Oh, I mean, the people were great, right? So, so that's been really fun just to spend time with, with good people and to, to, you know, really have thoughtful conversations and to work through problems together. Um, so all my co-authors and two of them are at the U of A. One is uh, Jeff Oliver. He's a data science librarian or data science specialist in the library. Um, and then the other one is Keaton Wilson, who's uh, affiliated with the School of Natural Resources. So, um, yeah, it's been, that was really fun. Um, what were your early years like? Was this field something that has always interested you? Oh, well, biology in general always interested me, but I was going to be a marine biologist. Um, <laughs> and I took my first marine biology class and I was just seasick the whole time. <laughs> and so um, <laughs> that didn't work out. Yeah. So when I came back from the course, um, I talked to my dad. My dad is a groundwater hydrologist or was, he just retired. Um, he worked for the U.S. Geological Survey and he was like, oh, you should meet my friend Grace. She's a veterinary uh, person at UC Davis and you want to go to UC Davis uh, after you finish your junior college work. And I said, okay, sounds good. I'll meet Grace. And Grace took me on a tour of the University of Davis campus before I even transferred, which was great. Very kind of her. Um, and she was like, oh, oh, you have to go see this person's office. Let me let me show you this person's office. So we went on the elevator to to store in store hall and went to the top floor, top sixth floor. Great view of, of Davis and and the coast range to the west. And um, we stop at this office, which is just covered in like newspaper articles and magazine clippings and just piles of books everywhere. And I'm like, Grace, what did you do to me? And she goes, no, no, you got to see this. And so she, she knocked on the door and she, she then introduced me to the professor, Art Shapiro, who um, just uh, was sort of your classic Renaissance man in many ways. So he's an, was an artist and uh, um, intellectual and a scientist. And, um, Anyways, Art was looking for a field assistant. And so that's sort of what started me on butterflies. I would drive Art to the field and we'd go collect butterflies. And um, I didn't get seasick. Chasing butterflies was really fun. And working with them was really easy compared to things like sharks. Yeah. Butterflies don't bite. So that was, that was a plus. Um, when did you, so was that kind of the moment you realized this was the career you wanted to go into? Or was it like beforehand that you realized this was the career you wanted to go into? I think I knew I wanted to be a biologist, but like, you know, when you're 16, 17, you're not sure exactly where exactly you fit in because there's lots of different bins you can go into. Um, and yeah, and so meeting with art sort of helped clarify the bin. 
We will be right back after a word from our sponsor. Welcome, Daily Wildcat listeners, to the Wildcat Weekly Recap Podcast. This weekly news podcast will highlight and bring you up to date on all University of Arizona news you may have missed in the last week. I'm your host, Maggie Rockwell, Assistant News and Science Editor, and I'll keep you informed and in the know. Listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere you stream. This is a Daily Wildcat news production online all the time at dailywildcat.com. What was your education journey like? So, yeah, so I grew up in a small town in northern Nevada. Um, and then I was given an opportunity to be a foreign exchange student to Sweden for a year. So I did that. And then I came back and um, uh, I really wanted to go to school out of state, but my parents couldn't have, or I couldn't afford it. So I went to a junior college first, um, got a great education there and then got residency and then transferred to UC Davis. Um, and then I did my master's degree at CU Boulder. Um, and then my PhD actually at the University of Arizona. And then did my, what we call a postdoc, which is sort of like a residency though for um, uh, scientists, for those of you in the medical profession. Um, and then I, at Yale, and then I did that became a faculty position and then I had a faculty position at Oregon State and then I moved back here when when uh, my husband got a job cool. in the area so what was the work experience like going into this field oh goodness um I mean it's super fun in many ways right like um I got to spend a lot of time outside. I got to go to really great places. You know, I've been to South Africa, to, to, to Mexico, Canada, other countries too, just in the wilds of the US even. Um, get to meet people from all over the world who are passionate about science and butterflies. Um, those are some really great things. And those were the things that like, oh, still to this day keep me going is good colleagues and, and good experiences. Um, I think it's, uh, something you've got to be um, able to to pivot and to listen to feedback and to take what people are saying to you. And sometimes they're not saying it to you kindly, um, but you've got to be able to sift through that and understand what they're trying to, what they're suggesting, and then understand how that suggestion could help you and then incorporate that into your practice. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's intense for sure. Um, but you know, like any profession, it's a lot of fun. What were some challenges that you faced going into this field? Like whether with working right after you got your degree or the, like anything you faced with going into the major itself? Yeah. So, you know, uh, you've, uh, this major in particular, you have to be um, facile with, math and computing. And it took me a while to get there. It wasn't something that I intuitively did um, or it felt like other people did it easier. I'm not sure if that's true. Um, so just sort of keeping at it. So just keeping plugging away at it and being okay with a C sometimes, which was hard, um, but that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And just uh, keep talking with people and keep networking with people is not necessarily easy. Because, um, you know, it's always hard to, like, how do you start a conversation? Like, why would this person talk to me? Especially when you're, like, starting out. Yeah, but, but people are 
really friendly for the most part. And so it was pretty easy. Um, yeah, but those are some of the challenges is just sort of learning the best practices, being able to communicate my expertise to other people mm -hmm. appropriately. And then, um, yeah, and then finding work is not always easy. So I finished my PhD right during the Great Recession. And so it created a lot, you had to hustle, right? And you had you faced so many rejections. I don't know how many jobs I've applied to, but it's, it's in the hundreds. Um, but it is sort of like, okay, like again, being able to identify internally, like what makes me happy and what do I need to be happy? Um, and then trying to align that with the opportunities as they're given to you. And there were a lot of suboptimal opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> but you make them work. <laughs> yeah, I feel like being passionate, you got to be passionate about whatever you're going into because sometimes things don't work out the way you want them to. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's also some narrative storytelling. You're like, oh, well, this isn't what I planned that I was going to do, right? But actually, this might be better. And, and maybe that's a little lying to myself, but I'm okay with that as long as I'm happy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, um. <laughs> What mentors have you had that had a significant impact on your life? Yeah, so so I've had a bunch of mentors, certainly, you know, going back to like, you know, elementary school, junior high school, high school, there were always teachers who were um, committed to um, all of our um, expertise and, and getting, becoming good um, community members. Um, there was one science teacher, Mr. Lathrop, who, who was really sort of helpful in getting, uh, helping me understand organism, the profession of organismal biology. So that was fun uh, and important. And then, you know, in college, uh, undergrad, I would definitely say Art Shapiro, who was a co-author on this most recent paper. So that was fun, some 20 years later to come back and, and work together with him again. That was really cool. Um, and use some of that data that I originally collected as an undergraduate. So that was sort of like closing the, the loop on that. Um, you know, in graduate school, you're assigned to a, a, a PI, a, a principal investigator, that's your main advisor. And so um, you work with that person really closely. And so, you know, on campus here, my uh, important PI was uh, Dan Pappage, who teaches over in uh, ecology and evolutionary biology. So he was a really good mentor who taught me um, many parts of the profession and sort of um, helped me come more familiar with professional expectations and how to navigate them. And then there's been, you know, committee members, random people that you meet who just make, you know, may only spend an hour with you, but make a, help you change your thinking uh, about um, how to do your job and how to do it better. Very cool. Thank you for sharing. Um... What are some projects that you were, want to work on in the future that you're planning on doing? Oh, yeah. So some of the things we're thinking about right now is sort of uh, taking the e-butterfly data we're collecting um, and doing uh, current range maps for all 800 butterfly species north of Mexico, um, 600, depending on who you talk to. Um, and then... Uh, uh, doing some forecast modeling uh, with climate change and, and sort of some of the environmental covariant changes in the environments across North America and how that might change their ranges. So pretty excited about that. Um, that will require some pretty serious computing, but that's okay. That'll be fun. Um, 
Other projects that we're working on is uh, a student in my lab, she's a master's student, Heather Lee Leary. She's working on the effects of um, thermal uh, ecology. So how warm an urban city is and um, how urban trees or urban forests may mitigate some of that, those heat islands. Um, and so I don't know if you know, but like last summer it was so warm that the saguaros couldn't even photosynthesize at night because that's when they normally do it. So they basically held their breath for like two months. That's crazy. Which, isn't that nuts? Like that, you, that an organism can do that and not die. But anyways. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so so there's some some in, really cool stuff going on, and um, yeah. Very cool. Um, and then, is there any advice you would want to give to students who are interested in pursuing a career in this field or interested in this major? Yeah, so I teach in um, the natural resource management, or um, let's see. Uh, R and R, Re renewable natural resources, and I'm in the wildlife track. So, students are are mostly in that track or focused on on animals. Um, but we also have a conservation track, which includes animals and plants. So, so getting involved again, you know, pick a major that you're passionate about. Talk, start talking with your professors about professional opportunities, like what that would look like, what sort of knowledge, skills, and abilities beyond the classroom, or how you. Uh, translate what you learned in the classroom into a professional environment, like more specifics on that. Uh, and suggestions is useful. Internships are a great way. Um, I'm a big proponent of paid internships uh, for what we do. Uh, we've got good associations with the state and federal agencies like uh, National Park Service or Fish and Wildlife or uh, Arizona Game and Fish. Um, so those are things I recommend. Again, I think reaching out to your professors, talking about professional development. Uh, and you know, the first one you email may not respond to you and that's okay. They're just busy and overwhelmed. Keep hunting until you find ones that will talk to you because they're out there. Behind the Beaker is a Daily Wildcat podcast created by Alexandra Perry. The Daily Wildcat online all the time at dailywildcat.com. Thank you to Katie Prudick and everyone involved in this podcast, including science editor Amit Sayal, managing editor and producer Pascal Albright, Udbob Venkentraman, the Science Desk, and Arizona Student Media. Behind the Beaker is a podcast about the unbelievable science and even more unbelievable scientists behind it at the University of Arizona. For more UA science stories, visit dailywildcat.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Daily Wildcat. This has been Behind the Beaker, a Daily Wildcat podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, comment, and rate our show.